All right, so uh, Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 31. Um, just a few words before we read it. Uh, this is an interesting passage. Um, it's one that, I don't want to say it's terribly hard to understand, but it's, um, you're kind of, sometimes you're a little left wondering what Paul is trying to get at with some of the things he's saying here, and some of the things he says, you know, throws a few people off from time to time, but uh, we'll try to muddle our way through it. So, uh, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21, Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, so there you have it. We're going to finish Galatians 4. Uh, just again, a few words from, of recap from last time. Uh, last time we looked at uh, verses 8 through 20, and this was Paul's plea to them. He, in a sense, as I look at it, in a sense, he's kind of takes a brief pause from his argument to make an appeal based on everything he said up to this point. So by everything up to this point, pretty much everything up from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 7, Paul has laid out several arguments, several ironclad, you know, obviously divinely inspired arguments uh, against the law, against trying to earn righteousness from the law, against trying to put the law back on over the promise. And then he makes appeal, and an appeal to them. Uh, he says, you are, you are turning back, you are returning, you are, you are going back to these things that were temporary. You are abandoning the, the freedom that you have in Christ in order to go back to the training wheels, to go back to the ABCs of the faith, uh, ABCs of religion. So he entreats them. He's like, look, you need to become as I am, as I am become as you are. Um, and then he talks about how he was well-received initially when he came there. And then he's like, what happened? Uh, what happened that you now treat me as an enemy? And he says there, it is always good to be made much of for good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. And then, and then this, this great little verse here in verse 19 where he says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And that right there, I think, speaks to the heart of Paul's passion for uh, the Galatians and really his passion for everyone to whom he ministers. 
he, he contrasts himself to the, the Judaizers, the false teachers who come in. They, they make much of the Galatians, but not for their benefit, but for the benefit of the false teachers. He says, they make much of you for them, for themselves, that they make much of them. Uh, he, they, it's for them to build their little uh, following. It's for them to put notches on their, on their belt or whatever that you know, they've made so many converts and, and, the, and they're converting them to a religion of slavery. And, and he's like, look, my desire for you is that Christ is formed in you. And, and it's that desire is so strong in me that it's as if I am trying to, I'm in, in, in child labor. I am in labor trying to give birth to the child that is Christ being formed in you. That's how much he is in anguish for their souls. Again, remember what he says very early on in, in chapter 1 where, you know, if anyone rejects the gospel that Paul preached, let that person be accursed. And, in, 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 you know, and then he says in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has deceived you? Uh, you're going to see this again and again. He's, he's very harsh in this letter because, again, at heart of, of Paul's argument here is the essence and the core of the gospel. And Paul does not want to have anything conflict with that, and, and he is, um, again, in anguish until Christ is formed, and, and really, that's the heartbeat of Christian ministry. Uh, it's not to build a following, it's not to, to make much of ourselves as, as preachers or pastors or ministers or what have you, but it is to form, to see Christ formed in you, and it's not that we form Christ in you, it is that the Spirit is doing that, but the Spirit does that through the proclamation of the Word which is what we are then called to do. We are called to proclaim this word to you so that the Spirit will take this word and then form Christ in you and form Christ's likeness in you. And then you start to bear the fruit of, of the Spirit in your lives as the Spirit is working in you uh, through your union with Christ. So all of this is Paul's passionate pastoral plea to use you know, the alliteration of the, the, the P's there. <laughs> Paul's personal, pastoral, passionate plea. What's that? Yeah. Paul's personal... Pa- yeah. <laughs> uh, so now, um, as Paul closes chapter 4 here, he's got one more example uh, before then he begins to exhort um, the Galatians in chapter 5 and following. And this one more example here is this example of Hagar and Sarah. Now, you know, again, as we read through that passage, you know, it's a little, you know, Paul is, is taking a story, the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah, and, and then he allegorizes it into their lives. And you may be thinking, well, that seems, you know, allegory, isn't that bad? Well, no, allegory is not necessarily bad. Paul is not denying the historicity of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. He's just saying, look, God, through history, working through history, is using these things. These stories are not just things that happen in history. They are things that happen in history. But God, working through them in his providence, is using them for our benefit. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, what was written in the past is for our benefit. You know, and, and if you remember in 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about how, you know, Moses 
led the people through the Red Sea, and, is, and then he says, well, you know, in a sense, we are, you know, that, that story was written for us as well. So these are not just, you know, historical events that happened in time and past, which they are, but they also have a deeper meaning that Paul draws out here. And I think it's a good example of how, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you can look and read the Old Testament and see these stories and try to draw these principles for New Testament living, right? I mean, Jesus himself said, the scriptures bear witness about me, right? When, in Luke 24, when he, when he meets the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, it says he opened up the scriptures and explained in them everything that pertained to him from the law and the prophets. So this all speaks to Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you, like, find Jesus under every rock, tree, and, and bush, but these stories do point, they're supposed to point us to Christ and to uh, his person and his work. So hopefully we'll see that as we look at this passage here this morning. But uh, just as an overall theme, as we look through this, a uh, big idea, if you will, is that you've got here two women, two sons, two covenants. Um, that's the title uh, of the lesson. Two women, two sons, and two covenants. And, and here you've got basically is this that the old covenant represents slavery. The new covenant represents freedom. That's, the, that's what Paul is driving in this passage here. The old covenant represents slavery. The new covenant represents freedom. And of course his warning is, is that you're going, you, know, you don't go back to the old covenant way of doing things. Because if you're, what you're doing is you're, you're giving up your freedom to go back under, under the bondage of slavery. Uh, you're, going, you're giving up your maturity in Christ to go back to infancy and childhood where you needed tutors and stewards and managers and guardrails and, and prison guards and all these things. You're going back to a pre-Christian form of religion which has served its purpose now that Christ is on the scene. So that's what we'll see here as we look at this. So first, let's look at uh, two sons by two women in verses 21 through 23, as Paul here is telling the story of, um, essentially relaying the story of Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, and Isaac. Uh, so you have here in verse 21, he says, Tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So here's a little kind of a, it kind of, this kind of sounds like what Jesus would say, right? Where, you know, he's talking to the Pharisees. What, what is one of the f- most common things Jesus would ever say to the Pharisees when he's confronting them? Have you not read? <laughs> right? You know, do you not hear the law? Have you not read? You know, it's like you're supposed to be a student of the law. Do you not know what it says? You know, I mean, when Jesus says that, he says that sarcastically. Have you not read? In other words, yeah, you have read this, but you're, not, you're missing the point. So as he's done in the past, Paul here is drawing out the implications, I should say, of being under the law. Uh, if you remember, just you know, looking at some verses we've looked at already, chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, For all who rely on works of the law, guess what? You're under a curse. You're under the curse because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Or verses 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Or in chapter 4, verse 9, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? To go back to the law is to be under a curse, it's to be under guardianship, it's to be uh, enslaved to weak and worthless things. So Paul here is saying, look, tell me you who desire to be under the law, you who desire to go back to these things, do you not hear what it's saying? Do you not hear what the law is saying to you? What is the law saying to you? Again, the law says to you, here's the bar, this is what you have to achieve, and that's it. Right? I, I, I'm not gonna, I can't give you any power to get over this bar. You're going to have to try to do that on your own or trust in the one who has. But the law is saying to you, this is, this is the standard. This is what God expects of you. you have, but you have no power. But not only that, but the law is saying, look, I'm temporary. My, my purpose in this world was to lead you to Christ, to, to bring you to the fullness of time, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 4. To, to guard you until the Christ who was promised in the Old Testament has now come. So do you not listen to the law? It's, again, reminiscent of what Jesus would say oftentimes where he says, have you not read? And what does the law say? Well, Jesus himself says the law bears witness to him. Uh, in John 5, verses 46 and 47, we looked at this when we looked at um, in that chapter in, God, in John's Gospel. But he says there, if you believed Moses, which they, you know, they claimed to have believed Moses, then you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moreover, he says earlier in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So the law, the scriptures, the, the Old Testament uh, scriptures that they had bore, bore witness to Jesus. Moses, Jesus says, wrote of me. And you're like, well, where? I don't see Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament. Well, that's because you, you don't see Jesus in there, but you see everything that points to Jesus in the Old Testament. So it's like, have you not read? Do you not know what the law is saying to you? You cannot keep it, but also the law is bearing witness to, to Christ. So now Paul turns to the life of Abraham to illustrate this point. Verses 22 and 23. For it is written, the law that you desire to be under, wrote of this, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. You're like, well, what's this talking about? Well, it's talking about what happened in Genesis chapter 16. And I want to look at some of these passages. So Genesis 16. Now up until that point in Genesis 16, God had made at least three promises of offspring for Abraham. In chapter 12, verse 7, God promised Abraham, the Lord appeared to him and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So then Abram built an altar there and, and, and worshiped the Lord. Then in chapter 13, verse 14, God says to Abraham, um, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, eastward, southward, and westward. 
For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And then in chapter 15, when, when um, Abram cries out to God, he's like, I have no, I have no offspring. These, so far you've promised me two, you know, two times offspring. I have no offspring. And, and the Lord says to him, look up to the sky and count the stars if you're able. That is how, that's how numerous your offspring will be. And of course, then Abram believes God. So three times... God had promised or confirmed a promise to Abram that he would have offspring who would inherit the land. Well, you get to chapter 16, and you read this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So, so far, <laughs> right, Abram leaves his home. I believe he's around 75 years old. Uh, by this time, he's getting close to 100, so nearly 25 years of promise and still no kids and I'm sure Abram's thinking, it's like, well, I'm, I'm getting pretty old, and, and my wife is getting pretty old, and, and uh, so we see here they still have no children. But what she did have was a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from, being, from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, we're going to get to it, but this is like one of those things where after Ishmael's born and Sarai is upset and Abram probably goes up to her and asks her, uh, honey, what's wrong? Is everything okay? She says, no, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, fine does not mean fine, right? <laughs> those are probably the two worst words a husband wants to hear from his wife. I'm fine. Nothing wrong. No, nothing at all. Verse 3 of chapter 16. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram for her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. Okay, I'm, you know, I have to pause here, okay. Whose idea was it to give her maidservant to Abram? Sarai. Why is Sarai yelling at Abram for doing what? Again, that's the thing. It's like, don't do what I ask you to do. Do what I mean for you to do. Is, is everything okay, sir? I'm fine. <laughs> uh, may the wrong done to her be on uh, you. I gave, I gave my servant to, you, uh, to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram's probably like, I'm going back out in the field, guys. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to hop in my tractor. I'm just going to start working again. Uh, call me when it's supper time. Uh, but Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power to do, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. I'm going to skip the rest. I mean, there's, you know, that's the story where uh, the Lord speaks to Hagar. Um, but then we find out in verse 15, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom he had bore, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So there you have it, uh, the, the son of the, the, the slave woman. And here you have uh, Ishmael, of course, who was born through Hagar, who was a slave to uh, Sarai. And of course, then you have Isaac, who was born through his wife, uh, Sarah, later on, right? Because... Um, in chapter 17, or is it, sorry, it's, um, yeah, chapter 17, if you look at verses 15 and following, 
Uh, and God said to Abraham, of course he changes his name now, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, which means princess, shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So you have here the promise that God uh, makes again to Abraham that, no, Ishmael is not your heir. Isaac, the son that I promised you back in Genesis 12, back in Genesis 13, back in Genesis 15, that's the son. The son will come from your wife. That is the son of promise. So you have here one child of the flesh, born of a slave woman. You have another child of promise, born as as a gift, as a divine intervention. And what Paul is doing, he is setting a stage here to show how you have these two sons, One is born of the flesh, which means human endeavor, works, right? That's what we do, right? God makes a promise, and then we think we can help God out, right? And then we go, and it's like, okay, okay, God promised me a son. Well, I better get to work. Sarah, you're barren? Okay, let's take the slave woman, and let's start working and making a child. This is what happens when we do, sorry, when uh, what we want to do uh, what God has already promised to do. So in other words, this is what happens when we try to do what God has promised that he himself would do. And again, Paul is going to use this to show how in our salvation, God has promised us that we would be sons and heirs. Yet we're trying to accomplish that in our own efforts, through our own works. And Paul's going to say, look, no. Your works, works of the law, that's like having a child of the flesh here. That's like making an Ishmael in your life. Right? And those things never turn out well. <laughs> right? I mean, Ishmael ends up becoming the progenitor of the entire Arab race of people. Right? And as you know anything in history, right? Do the Arabs like the Jews? No. Generally speaking, no. Okay? Uh, they're still, even today, fighting over uh, the promised land and so on and so forth. So you have here one child of the flesh, which means human endeavor, human works, one child of promise, a divine intervention, a gift. Do you remember what Paul, uh, well, before we go back there, look again, if you still have Genesis open, in Genesis 18, starting in verse 9. Now this is after uh, God appears to him in a theophany, uh, in, in a human form. It's not an, it's not an incarnation. Uh, it's a theophany. He appears with two angelic servants. And he uh, visits Abraham. And in verse 9, they, God and the two angelic servants, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Well, you think she was 90. I mean, I mean the, the way of women probably ceased uh, decades before that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the way of women had ceased with her. Um, 
So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And this is the verse. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Again, Isaac could not be produced through human effort. Isaac had to be done through divine intervention. And God is saying, look, I can make a child grow in the womb of a woman who is well past her time. I can make a man who is 100 years old and a woman who is 90 years old bear a child. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, if the Lord could speak the world and the universe into, into existence by the power of his own word, do you think he could not speak and Abraham and Sarah could have a child? And again, that's, you know, now, and now fast forward to what Paul is trying to use the story to illustrate is our salvation. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What does Jesus say? Well, with man this is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. God can speak into our hearts and make a dead sinner come back to life in Christ. That's what he says in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace we are saved. By grace we are saved. So Paul's like, look, here's the story of Abraham. You have, he tried to fulfill the promise in his own works, and he made an Ishmael. And it's like, Ishmael was blessed by the Lord, but not in the way that Isaac was. And, and Isaac is the one who is the child of promise, and God promises him, look, I can make this child come. Do not laugh. This, this will happen a year from now. And of course, a year from now, what happens? child is born. <laughs> yeah. Yitzhak <laughs> means laughter. Imagine if you named your children the first thing that <laughs> popped in your mind when, when they're born. You know, this is my, this is my son, Al. <laughs> this, is, this is my daughter. You did this to me. <laughs> I've been reading through Hosea, and um, it's interesting because in the early chapters, of course, Hosea's life, uh, he's, he's sort of like a living uh, parable to the people of Israel about their adultery and their apostasy. And, and, of course, you know the story, right? Uh, God tells Hosea to take a wife, a prostitute as a wife, and have children by her. And then God tells him what to name the children. He says, this first child will be no mercy. This next child will be not my people. <laughs> it's like, imagine that going to school. And you're like, okay, and we have a new student in class this morning. And, uh, and what's your name? Uh, my name is No Mercy. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's your name really? No, no, it's, it's No Mercy. It's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And, and what's your sister's name? Oh, well, her, her, her name is not my people. <laughs> you know, it's like, that, that's, yeah, that's, uh, names mean something. Well, back to, um, back to Galatians 4. So it should be clear here, Paul setting up an argument to show how our justification comes only through faith based on the promise. Any other attempt to earn justification through works is born of the flesh. And so in other words, you have here, again, two approaches to religion. Two approaches to religion. You're either going to try to earn it yourself, which isn't going to work, or you're going to trust in the promise of God, which will work. Um, real quick, and I'm, I know I'm taking too much time on this, but I apologize, but Hebrews chapter 11, which 
uh, speaks of the faith of all of these, um, many of these Old Testament uh, figures. Um, we, we, hear, we see here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, how, how did Sarah bear a child? Well, it was by faith, right? By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. So this wasn't, this wasn't an immaculate reception. Or, sorry, that's, 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 uh, that's the Super Bowl, right? The immaculate reception. That was uh, Franco Harris, sorry. An immaculate conception. Of course, that's not even of Jesus. That speaks of Mary. Anyway, this wasn't a virgin birth, okay? This, Sarah was given the power to conceive. Uh, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Verse 12, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, um, Sarah conceived. Back to Galatians 4. So here, Paul is now going to interpret this story allegorically. So his allegorical interpretation in verses 24 through 27. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So Paul's point in bringing up this episode in Abraham's life is to make an allegorical point, and that word literally just comes into the English from the Greek, allegoreo. It means something that is symbolic, an allegory, something that is figurative, an illustration. Um, think of the story of Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan. That is probably the most uh, famous Christian allegory. And it's, and it's the most popular book outside of the Bible written in the English language. Paul, uh, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress in which Every character in the story has a name that means something. The main character is Christian, and he goes on a journey, and he's got a burden, which is sin, and he goes into these cities, and he meets people, Evangelista and all these other people. It's telling the story of a pilgrim's progress, okay? hence the title of the, of the story. Or maybe something a little more recent. Uh, think of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, also written as an allegory. Now, of course, some who take the Bible uh, seriously often accuse uh, those of us, some, you know, particularly from a reform camp, of not taking the Bible literally when we look and see types and symbols in the Old Testament. But here we see Paul is not afraid to, take, to see in this historical narrative, again, story of Abraham's history. I'm not denying it. Paul does not deny it. He's just saying in that history is a deeper spiritual truth that we can draw out and apply to ourselves. So he sees in the historical narrative things that point allegorically to New Testament theological realities. And again, I reference 1 Corinthians 10.11 where Paul says these things, everything in the Old Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written yet, these things were written for our benefit. Of course, we caution, we don't want to over-allegorize. Okay? <laughs> You've got, you got to be careful, try to stick within you know, what the scripture is actually saying. But what's the allegory here? Well, these two women, Hagar and Sarah, one a slave, one free, they are representative of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So you have two women, two sons, two covenants, two cities. Right? You have Hagar, which represents the covenant made on Sinai, which is slavery, 
and uh, represents the present Jerusalem. And then you have Sarah, who represents the new covenant, uh, uh, the promise that is confirmed in Isaac, and she represents the Jerusalem that is above. So Hagar, who bore Abraham a son in the flesh, she symbolizes the old covenant which was ratified on Mount Sinai, and that covenant gave birth to bondage. Again, what did Paul say so far about the law? Right? The law was added because of transgressions. The law was a guardian. The law keep, kept you imprisoned. The law was a tutor. The law was all these things that sort of oversaw the maintenance of Israel, a people of God in their infancy, until until the, the, the fullness of time comes and Jesus comes. And when that happens, then the law as a guardian has served its purpose. A tutor, once a child is, is educated and raised, the tutor has served his or her purpose. You don't need a tutor anymore. If you're trying to learn to ride a bicycle and you, you've successfully learned a bicycle, you don't need the training wheels anymore. If you're, if you're a, a good bowler, you don't need the guardrails to keep the ball from going in the gutter anymore. Okay? The point is the law was temporary, earthly, and it was made obsolete. If you remember... I believe I preach on this in New Year's Day. In Hebrews 8, um, the writer there is talking about how Jesus mediates a better covenant. How the old covenant was obsolete. Once, once a new covenant comes, the old covenant is obsolete. So in, in, in chapter 8, verse 1 of Hebrews, he says, Now then the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is in the order of Melchizedek one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. We have a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. And then he goes on in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the Old Covenant could serve the purpose of of bringing justification, making the people holy, you wouldn't have needed a new covenant. But here he's saying, look, no, that covenant was old, obsolete. It served its purpose. You needed a new covenant. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31-34, where the prophet there says, Behold, the days are coming where I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with those of Judah. Uh, not like the covenant that I made before with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So that covenant was conditional. It could be broken, and it was broken. And he says in verse 10, For this covenant that I will make with them, uh, I will put into the, my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be my, their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, this, this is a, 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 a better covenant. So in chapter 8, verse 13, he says, In speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete, outdated. It served its purpose. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish. So Paul is saying, look, this, this, this covenant is earthly. It's temporal. It, it, um, it has served uh, its purpose. Now notice how Paul looks at the old covenant and the earthly Jerusalem. Back to Galatians 4. Uh, He says here, 
Um, verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So here the Old Covenant is, is compared to the earthly Jerusalem, which ironically, that's where these Judaizers have come from, right? So it's representative of the old way of doing things. It's representative of the Old Covenant way of doing things. And they have come into Galatia to sort of impress that upon the Christians there. You have to go back to the old ways. And Paul's like, no, that's earthly. That is gone. And he concludes that this part of the old, earthly, temporal, obsolete order that produces bondage. In other words, the Judaizers coming in thinking, this is the way to, to earn righteousness. But what are they proving? That they, they're proving that not that they're sons of promise like Isaac, they're proving that they are children of the flesh like Ishmael. The Judaizers are, in a sense, Ishmael. Right? They are, they are sons of the slave woman. The contrast, of course, is with the new covenant and the Jerusalem above, the heavenly uh, Jerusalem here. And Paul says that we Christians are children of the free woman. Well, what were children? What were, who's the free woman? Sarah's the free woman. How was her child born? It was born of promise. Was it born through the flesh? No, it was a divine intervention by God himself who said, I will make you conceive. That's how Christians are made, right, in a sense. Right? We are children of promise. We are children of the free woman. We are children of the heavenly Jerusalem. And just like Isaac was born by divine intervention, the new birth in the Christian is a divine intervention. It is a work of God alone. And then he quotes here from Isaiah 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Abraham and Sarah were once barren. Right? Sarah was once barren. She had no children. And here, uh, Paul is applying this verse from Isaiah and applying it to Sarah, saying, the one who was desolate is now has a multitude of children. She'll have more than the one who has a husband. The one who was who was too old to bear children, she, she gave birth to many nations, many kings, as it was said, came, came from her. So here we have, again, Paul's point is, I think, couldn't be more clear. He is linking the Judaizers with their desire to do the works of the law with a desire to return back to the bondage of the Old Covenant, to the earthly and to the obsolete way of doing things. So now, in the time that we have left, we're going to see here, Paul is going to apply this lesson now to the Galatians in verses 28 through 31. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, you can almost see here, what Paul, when, when Paul's done making the allegory, he starts to apply it by saying, you can, you know, what we would say in Chicago, so you're going to get a little bit of, a couple of Chicagoisms here. You, know, you go up and say, who's your mama, right? <laughs> who's your mama? Is your mama Sarah, or is your mama Hagar? Are you of Hagar, the, the slave woman, 
Are you a child of Sarah, the free woman? Which one are you? Well, he says, you brothers. Notice how Paul speaks there. He is speaking to the Galatians now. He calls them brothers. He's like, you are like Isaac. You are, you are children of promise. You are children of the free woman. Don't enslave yourself. Don't pretend like you're children of Hagar. Don't pretend like you are Ishmael, born of the flesh. You are born of the, the free woman. You are a child of promise. Again, look at verse 29 of chapter 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You don't have to be a Jew to be a son or daughter of Abraham. It is, that is something that is given to you by faith. Paul makes he draws that out more deeply in Romans 4. We're not going to go there. But then returning to the story of Abraham, Paul recounts the story of, how I, of Isaac's weaning in Genesis 21, 8 and following. I'm not going to turn there because of time, but once Isaac was weaned, Abraham throws a party. And then what you see there in the background is Ishmael is there. He's probably 12 or 13, give or take. And, and he starts, he's snickering. He starts scoffing, it's, it's saying. And then when, when Sarah sees that, he's like, we need to get rid of uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael is not going to be an inheritor of, uh, of you, Abraham. And Abraham, well, he kicks, you know, he, he, well, he doesn't kick her out. I mean, he gives her some things, and, but he, he releases her. In other words, you cannot have these two kind of working together because of the, con- the conflict there. And he's, he, he, he says that and applies that to what's happening here in Galatia, where the Judaizers were coming in, and what were they doing? Well, they were mocking. They were persecuting them. They were, as Paul says earlier, they were spying out the freedom that we have in Christ. And then they were sort of persecuting them and pressuring them to, to no, you've got to become Jews first. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the laws and all these things. And then citing 21.10 of Genesis, Paul tells him you need to cast out the slave woman. You need to cast out the Judaizers. They are not helping you. You think they're helping you. They're not helping you. They're enslaving you. They, are, they, they represent slavery. They represent bondage. They represent legalism. All of these things which are antithetical with the promise and again, what you see here is the true church is always going to be persecuted. It's always going to be persecuted by, on one side or the other. In this case, this is, it's being persecuted on the side of legalism. But you're going to have some on the other side, on antinomian, the, those who, who think there is no place for the law in the Christian life. They're going to persecute the church too. But Paul is more concerned over here because what they're doing is they're trying to add to the work of Christ. And if you add anything to Christ, you get nothing. Right? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So here you've got, he says, you need to cast them out. They are, they are upsetting you. They are troublers, as he says in other places. You need to kick them out. The whole point of, the Gal- of Galatians here is to protect the integrity of the gospel ministry. And the way to do that is to make sure that there are no legalizing contaminants in the gospel message. The gospel message has to be pure. It has to be presented purely. It has to be presented as something that you cannot do, but is done in Christ, and you receive that by faith. That is the gospel message. If you add anything to that, you distort it, you pervert it, you corrupt that gospel message. 
So just to bring this to a close here, the obsolescence of the Old Covenant, again, mitigates against going back to it. It's obsolete. It served its purpose. It's no longer useful. It's no longer in effect. Don't go back to it. You're going back in time. You're going, you're going backwards and from a redemptive historical perspective. It has given way to the New Covenant. It has served its purpose in guarding the people of God in their infancy until Christ comes. But always in our attempt to keep the Gospel pure, we need to resist the error of confusing our response to the Gospel with the Gospel. I think that's where you get the legalizing efforts. Is where you start looking at things like repentance and obedience and good works, and you start mingling them with the Gospel. Okay? No, no. The Gospel produces repentance and obedience and good works. But those things are not the gospel. Right? The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And because of that, then you are repentant and you are obedient and you do good works. So our take home is that we are sons and daughters of the free woman and thus we are children of promise. We are children born through the power of God by the Holy Spirit. In our gospel, then the gospel is a declaration is a declaration of freedom, as we will see, next, uh, Lord willing, next week in chapter 5. Freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ. He has done it all, and we are co-heirs with him through faith on the basis of the promise.